0: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, my guest is Chris Swank. Chris is at Signum University. She has published variously on Game of Thrones. And she explains two things that I was really curious about. That being peace weaving and the blood eagle ritual. Steve and I cover Blood of My Blood... And then in my Bird's Eye View section, I include an excerpt of my conversation with Jason Kabasi from the Podcastica Network. You might have listened to his Game of Thrones podcast back in the day. But anyway, Jason and I do a retrospective on Game of Thrones in this week's episode of Cocoons of Horror, so you can search for Cocoons of Horror wherever you search for podcasts. And if you do this week, you will hear the full hour-long conversation between Jason and I where we do that retrospective and also anticipate a bit of House of the Dragon. I'll include just a short excerpt of that conversation in my Bird's Eye View section. And if you're wondering, yes, this is my clever way to get you over to Cocoons of Horror. It's a ton of fun. You can listen. You can follow. You could write us a review on Apple iTunes. Consider it my early birthday gift slash Christmas gift slash winter solstice. Uh, no, no, no. It's the St. Patty's gift. That's what we'll call it the St. Patty's Day gift. I would really appreciate your help. Without further ado, here is Dr. Chris Swank. Chris Swank, today we are covering uh, Catelyn. This is her. Eighth chapter. And I I found you because I was looking at the table of contents of a book.
4: Oh, which book?
0: Again, Salvation by Book. Um, uh, Queenship and the Women of Westeros. So you wrote an essay in there. And what was the essay title of that one?
4: The Peace Weavers of Winterfell.
0: Uh, the Peace Weavers of Winterfell. So I thought maybe we could start by talking a little bit about... What does it mean to be a peace weaver? And is this always a gendered category? And just tell me everything I need to know about peace weaving.
4: Sure. It's an Anglo Saxon concept. We meet it in Beowulf as well as in some of the other literature like Maxims 1. And it seems to be that a peace weaver would be a woman who tried to bring two tribes together through marriage and establish the peace. But mm. in Beowulf, this doesn't last very long. It doesn't seem to be a super effective way to bring peace to the previously warring parties, mm. but they they tried anyway. And that seems to be a, a function of the highborn women. There's a lot of evidence that Martin was thinking of the Anglo-Saxon culture when he was writing the Starks. Right, And so the women of the Stark family uh have been peace weavers. so they just if if you marry your enemy and you have a child with that enemy, then that child kind of binds the two sides together and you wouldn't want to, yeah, necessarily attack that castle because your blood is now in that
0: castle. yeah, it's sort of sort of like the intermingling of blood, you could call it blood weaving, uh, yeah, sort of a, a substratum of the peace weaving, right?
4: Yes, and then but more than just being um, the bride and the mother, the Peaceweaver was also a an intelligent woman. She would give her husband counsel mm. on, I guess, internal matters to do with, you know, the, the running of the castle, but she also might give him political counsel. And you see this with, with Caitlin, yeah. uh, absolutely giving Ned Stark advice and welcome advice, not yes. interfering Shrewish advice, but he turns to her as his greatest counselor.
0: And in the chapter we're looking at today, she becomes Rob's
4: counselor. Exactly.
0: All right. I'm going to read a short uh, synopsis of this chapter, and then we can talk about it. Cat arrives at the ruins of Moat Kalen with the rotund Manderley Brothers. Manderly Brothers almost sounds like a 1950s doo group or something.
4: I think I had um, their album.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like their newer stuff myself. Uh, she rides to the gatehouse tower and discovers that Rob is preparing for war with several of Ned's bannermen. After pleasantries, introductions, and news from the Eerie, Cat asks to speak with Rob alone. She tests her son's resolve. They discuss Sansa, Arya, Cersei. Cat questions him about his leadership and wartime strategy. Rob reveals his plan to divide his host and force a river between Jamie and Tywin's armies. He will lead the Mounted Men against Jamie. He wants to send the Great John against Tywin, but then thinks better of it upon Cat's advice. Rather than the Great John, he will give Roose Bolton the lead. Then Rob tries to send Cat to Winterfell, but she declines. She will go see her dying father and beleaguered brother at River Run. So, Chris Swank... Would you like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos?
4: I think the ladder of chaos sounds fascinating. However, I'd really like to talk about cat.
0: Yeah. Ladder of chaos is perilous. So tell me about cat.
4: As the shadowing of Winterfell at the beginning of the series, she is really a great example of the Anglo-Saxon peace weaver. She, uh, has to negotiate between the king and the queen showing up Mm -hmm. Um, between John snow, you know, being really one of the family, but she doesn't want him to have children that would rival her children's children. And and so really encourages the whole idea of going to the wall for, for John. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: And then when Robert asks Ned to be the hand, In the books, she's like, yes, you have to do this. If you, you know, say no, he's going to suspect you're against him. And she convinces him. In the TV show, they really undercut the character. I I agree with you. Oh, my gosh.
0: I I couldn't stand that part of it. She's Um, like, don't
4: go, don't go. And he's like, oh, I have to go. But really, in the book, she's behaving. She's kicking him out the door. Well, so Ned leaves her in charge of Winterfell right? Uh-huh. And says, counsel our son. And he goes to off to be the hand. She almost immediately like leaves Winterfell and never goes back. She's running all over Westeros. Mm-hmm. And this is not the function of a peace weaver. It sounds very regressive in a you know feminist mm-hmm. way, but if we're to read the Starks as Anglo-Saxons, she should not have been running around Westeros. She should have stayed in Winterfell. Think of all the things that could have been prevented if she'd stayed in Winterfell. But instead, she's down here now at Moat Kalen. She's Mm -hmm. giving um, Rob military advice, Yeah, probably helping to undercut some authority that he's got with people like the Boltons. We see how that turns out. She's uh, told to go home, and she's like, "Nope, I'm gonna go see my dad, my brother," right, and right. and that's not her function, really. She's should be the the Chatelaine of Winterfell at this point. So I think there's a really interesting chapter where she could make things right and go home, protect mm-hmm. the the keep from, you know, just Bran is back there. Really, she's she sent I think Sir Roderick back there. She but did,
0: yeah. He's supposed she needed to, do to what... be there. Yeah, yeah he he's commanded to do what Ned commanded her to do. Right, right right
4: so this is really a turning point there are so many turning points in the story where Mm. character could do the right thing or do the wrong thing and of course martin's interesting because they always do the wrong thing uh and here she really should have gone home instead of going to river run
0: there's a lot of interesting plot that can happen when characters do the wrong thing
4: indeed That's why we keep reading this.
0: (laughs) That's right. I mean, I think that part of investing in a character like Kat, um, regardless of her gender, is that she's not always going to do the right thing. Like, a character who always does the right thing is just uninteresting, right?
4: Right, right. They all stayed at Winterfell and lived happily ever (laughs) after. would have been a much shorter series. Right.
0: So I wonder if... um, I mean, it's interesting that, uh, you know, there's almost like this pattern in Martin's work about, you know, women who fail to be peace weavers or maybe they're tragically inefficient peace weavers. So I want to absolutely echo the thesis of your paper. At the same time, I wonder if some of this is just the virtue of the plot. The plot's more interesting if one of these compelling characters makes the wrong decision for seemingly the right reason or something along those lines
4: sure yes it all makes sense and the military advice that she's giving rob makes sense uh, Uh in several chapters from now you know with joining renly baratheon or trying to negotiate for sansa and area's release but honestly if she had just stayed in Winterfell, this sounds terribly unfeminist of me but (laughs) (laughs) From the terms of the book, if she Uh had just stayed in Winterfell when Ned was taken, she could have calmed Rob down and maybe they wouldn't have sent for the banners and declared war. Maybe they could have negotiated out of this situation, but she wasn't there.
0: No, I totally get that, and I to- i mean, I—I I think you're absolutely right on this. I think a lot of times what I'll hear from other folks is if she just hadn't misjudged Tyrion, you know, she could have this all could have been avoided, right? Um, or if she just hadn't been duped by Littlefinger, this all could have been avoided. Well, guess who else is duped by Littlefinger? Almost everyone. Everybody. Who? Guess who else misjudges Tyrion? Almost everyone. And I think sometimes this is meant to undercut. Cat's political savvy, but that's not how I read her at all. I think that she absolutely has as much savvy as any southern lord or lady. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe she doesn't manage the north nearly as well as someone who is a native to the north
4: might. Yeah, their strength is in holding the north, and as soon as Winterfell falls um, to Theon, then. That's all. I want to read
0: this uh, short. Yeah, yeah. I want to read this short passage from the chapter. Yeah. So, Kat is questioning Rob on why he is, you know, as a 15 year old, has taken leadership. They are not Starks, he said. They are men, Rob, seasoned in battle. You were fighting with wooden swords less than a year past. She saw anger in his eyes at that. But it was gone as quick as it came, and suddenly he was a boy again. I know, he said abashed. Are you are you sending me back to Winterfell? Cat sighed,I I should. You ought never to have left. Yet I dare not, not now, you have come too far. Some day these lords will look at you as their liege. If I pack you off now like a child being sent to bed without his supper, they will remember, they will laugh about it in their cups. The day will come when you will need their respect, even to fear you a little. Laughter is poison to fear. I will not do that to you as much as I might wish to keep you safe. So man, I just I, I reread that passage a number of times for a lot of different reasons, but after reading your essay, I reread it and I thought, I wonder if Chris would think of this as an example of peace weaving between Rob and his future Bannerman.
4: Yes. And I don't even know if she would be able to send him home, so to speak, like if he didn't want to go. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But mommy he cowers. Him, but yes. Yeah.
0: Where is the power? Power is where men think it resides. Right. Right. So if Rob kind of cowers and becomes her son and takes off that cloak of, you know, Lord of Winterfell or whatever, then she might have a quite a bit of power over him. I think Kat maybe knows this, but I think ultimately she wants to sow peace between Rob and these bannermen. What yes. do you think about that? Am I yes. thinking about this wrong? She doesn't know.
4: And she, she that's her only play at this point. Right. Mm. He's already called the banners. It's not right. We right. can't un, undo that. She sizes up the situation very quickly. She walks into the. Uh huh kind of broken down keep that they're using the hall with the peat fire, you know, roaring Right. and she immediately sizes up the situation and she wants to run to her son and hug him. Yeah. And she knows I can't do that in front of these men that would just make him seem like a little boy. So she has that instinct right away to try to position him as the, as the leader of the armies.
0: Right. Even though he's
4: 15 years old.
0: Well, I was rereading the passage where what Ned tells her before she leaves King's Landing. He says, go, you know, send word to the great John Umber and send word to Hellman Tallheart and tell them to fortify Moat Caitlin." And so that kind of happens. Like the both of those guys are there. Um, but it's under Rob's leadership, you know. So, I mean, I guess you could say that what Kat could have done here is she could have said, I have word from Ned Stark, your liege lord. And he said that Jon Umber and Hellman Tallhart are to take control of this force or something. And, of course, I'm going to take the future Lord of Winterfell back to Winterfell. I think she could have made that play. Uh, I mean, she thinks better of it, but I think that would be an option to her.
4: I think that might have worked with Tallheart and and Great John. It wouldn't have worked with Bolton. Well, I don't know what would have worked with Bolton. Anyway. (laughs) but (laughs) any sign of weakness you know wouldn't have worked
0: yeah i I mean i think you're right i think that she i think she makes a decision that will that she thinks will put her son in the best position to be the lord of winterfell Mm -hmm. um and that she also knows like well this could mean death for everyone but it's really the only way forward um I guess I'm just thinking, you know, she she decides, you know, she decides for that rather than the other option would be, you know, to keep Rob safe back at, at Winterfell. Uh, that, that's not insignificant to me.
4: Yeah, I, I think that play needed to be made. When Ned was taken, when they got word that Ned was taken. Um, to fortify Winterfell, but, you know, she wasn't there to give that advice. I also think it's a bad play for her to leave him at that point. Mm-hmm. So the, the peace weaver is a wife first. And then if the husband is dead or gone, then to be the mother of the next Lord. Mm. Instead, she wants to write off and see her father and her brother. That's no longer her responsibility.
0: Right. Okay. A second and, and really important part of your essay was this, I guess these two other categories that that we see in the women of Beowulf. And I wonder if you could talk about, uh, you know, sort of the strife weaver and the she-wolf.
4: Sure. So the strife weaver is not a phrase from, from Beowulf. It is a, a category that some feminist scholars have uh, assigned to people like Grendel's mother. And, um, do we do we do spoilers on this podcast? Absolutely, we do. All right. Yeah. So when when Kat turns into Lady Stoneheart, you know she is that sort of strife weaver where she's taking her vengeance out on her enemies in the same way that Grendel's mother does. Uh-huh. You could call aria a strife weaver. She takes vengeance out on anybody that. You know, she's got her whole litany of people that she says before bed every night, right. and wants to take them out. So the strife weaver is a woman who enters the male world of battle, which is not an Anglo-Saxon value. That's that's not what yeah. women should be doing. And you often find the strife. Yeah, Weavers right. If
0: we yeah. take this category seriously, this is almost a monstrous
4: category, right? Exactly. Exactly, and women who engage in military matters in the Anglo-Saxon literature are considered monsters. Mm. So that's, that's one category. Um, the and, other and as, lady
0: Stoneheart is very much a monster. I mean,
4: absolutely.
0: Right. So, absolutely. So she has that in common with Grendel's mother.
4: Yes. And Arya becomes something of a monster as well. Then the other category might be my interpolation of of a character that's not well uh, looked at in Beowulf, which is she's in a story that they tell within the story of Beowulf. Um, she's uh thrift or mode When she was a princess, all these men tried to court her um, and she had them killed. And so mm. they think of her as a monster. Gosh, you just look at that lady and she'll have you killed. She then marries Offa, who is the, big king on the block at that time. And she becomes sweet and tender and loving. And the the traditional interpretation of that is, ah, Offa controlled her. He got her on a leash and now she's behaving like a woman. But some feminist scholars are looking at her and saying, maybe these courtiers that were approaching her were thought of as sexual harassers or were not welcome. Yeah, maybe and she, so she has
0: warrant for not liking to be looked at right? in the way that they're looking
4: at her. Right. And she is a princess and has the power to have them killed, so that's how she gets rid of them. And they, maybe Offa of, allows her the security that that's not going to happen anymore, and she can relax. Or maybe she truly loves him. I don't know. Mm. But this idea of a woman that can be both things, right? You're not just loving and tender, You're not just a monster. You move with the situation. And that is like a she-wolf that is tender with her cubs, is vicious with anybody who threatens Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the one woman in Beowulf who has a happy ending. There's one woman in the Game of Thrones that seems to have a happy ending um, after much travail. Uh, according to the movies or the TV show is Mm -hmm. Sansa and Sansa uses both the the tenderness and she learns to use the authority to have people killed as is warranted. So those are some categories that you can see of women in Beowulf that are also reflected in Martin's series.
0: Right. So let's say I'm, I'm looking at Grendel's mother through new eyes because of this category of she-wolf. I'm wondering if maybe we could, we could interpret Grendel's mother as someone who is justifiably protective of her only son and justifiably avenges him. Correct. So, yes. I mean, I don't know if that's that's necessarily how that story is intended to be read. But, of course, you know, we, ha- we readers have uh, a certain autonomy in these things.
4: You even have some revisions of the Beowulf story coming out. To that effect that she's a wronged mother or that she's a mother whose child Hmm. was wrongly killed has no male relatives to take her vengeance for her Hmm. and has to do it herself. Of course, the male dominated Danes would think she was a monster because she's not behaving in a ladylike manner. When Catlin becomes involved with the military decisions and Rob's troop movements, as she begins to, in this chapter she also goes down that road to being monstrous in the eyes of the male-dominated Westeros. Right. And, of course,
0: I'm interested here in, since we're already talking about Lady Stoneheart, I think that eventually Kat's decision not to go back to Winterfell has consequences, too, because she's the one that really arranges for the crossing uh, at, at at the Twins.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And one of the ways that she does that is that she arranges a few marriages. Um, one of the marriages is, you know, between one of Frey's daughters and Rob. And then, of course, that sets up a a tremendous consequence uh, for Rob eventually and and for
4: Kat. Yeah. And back to your question earlier about is the peaceweaver category always female? Well, in the Anglo-Saxon literature, yes. But in Martin, not necessarily, because when the marriage between Rob and the Frey girl doesn't come off, mm-hmm. Kat negotiates for her brother.
0: Uh, right? Edmure yeah, Edmure becomes the, the married Frey. Right. He
4: becomes a hostage uh-huh. to the Freys, and he's that tragic peace weaver, failed peace weaver. Uh, right. Of course, his marriage doesn't settle the peace. There's actually violence at his wedding. It doesn't settle the peace for a single minute. <laughs> he
0: he wasn't a good enough prize, I suppose.
4: <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> they they wanted Rob. They didn't want the poor substitution, the the poor echo. Um, I was okay. I was fascinated by this other mention that you just make in passing in the essay. And that is to the Blood Eagle Ritual. Um, Because in this chapter, we meet for the first time, Roose Bolton. Right. And we've heard about Roose before, but this is the first time we really meet him. And the way that he's introduced is a formidable person, but he's really kind of scary. So tell me a little bit about maybe the Roose Bolton connection to Viking lore.
4: Sure. I think even Rob says he kind of scares me. That
0: yeah. That uh, yeah, golden. no doubt.
4: Um the historicity of the bloody gold ritual, notwithstanding, it's a popular enough trope that it's useful here as a reference.
0: Oh, uh, absolutely. Because Martin loves the rumors of history as much as anything else.
4: Right? Of course, we all do. Come on. Yeah. Uh so the sign of the 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 sigil of the Bolton family is the flayed man this is what they're known to do to their enemies to flay the skin from them they're they're masters at it and it's on their banner right so immediately he's associated with this idea of not just killing your enemy but really peeling their skin off before they die Mm -hmm. which is gruesome and and painful and prolongs that interaction between uh Victor and, and and victim um it, it's a brilliant uh move on martin's behalf to just be able to say on the banner as the flayed man and immediately people's minds start to run in these directions of this supposed viking ritual where they open the chest they pull out the organs and lay them on top of your open chest so that you can see your innards before mm-hmm. you die I'm going to be passed out a long time before that happens. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Pull, they pull out your lungs, right? They spread you like a spread and and open you up. And so if you've heard these stories, if you know this popular culture idea of Viking treatment of enemies, mm-hmm. then the flayed man on the banner immediately makes you think of that gruesome ritual. And therefore you understand the Boltons that quickly.
0: Right. Like a nice family
4: isn't going to have that on their banners.
0: Right. Okay, so I did a a teeny bit of research on this once I read it in your essay. Oh, good. So I don't know if this is – this is really kind of half ass internet research. However, it looks like in Norse tradition, there's two examples of this in Norse literature where this ritual occurs. And in both cases, it's a consequence for a lord or king – who has committed patricide. So there's two examples of this, and both of these uh, noblemen killed their own father. I thought it was interesting to me because, while it's not in the books, uh, in the show, Ramsay Bolton ends up killing his own father. And I wonder if if there's a connection there. I I mean, this is just kind of me surmising.
4: It certainly could be the way Martin's uh, mind was working, thinking yeah. down the road of what's going to happen to these characters. I think that's brilliant.
0: Well, I, I, I'm waiting to see. I, you know, we, we're not we don't really know what's going to happen to Ramsey in the books, um, but I wonder if there would there will be some plain consequence to sort of. Uh,
4: uh... Well, someday when Brandon Sanderson finishes the books for us, <laughs> okay, we'll All find right. out. <laughs>
0: I, I always say it'll be the, the AI construct of George <laughs> Martin, who finishes these books. And I can't wait. I mean, I, I'm willing to undergo sort of the AI overlords if indeed one of them is a Martin uh, author. Uh, notable introductions in this chapter. So, um we hear of uh, Wyman Manderley and his fat sausage fingers. Uh, both of his sons, Willis and Wendell. Uh, there's a few lords that we've heard about previously but we sort of meet in person for the first time we meet the towers of Mo kalin uh and this is the first mention of the myth about the hammer of the waters which is all very vague uh but i guess there it's something that the some sort of magic that the children of the forest were able to do uh, to kind of create the the stepstones between um, Essos and Westeros, and this is the first mention of ghost skin, which is a ropey, slimy moss that's kind of grossly hanging from certain trees in the bogs of uh, Moat Kalen. And then notable show differences. In the show, the Blackfish is not involved with any of this, um, which is kind of a shame. I, I really love that character. I would love to see him in more scenes, but uh, in you know, basically, the Blackfish was never at the Erie, so uh, Catlin never really has that exchange with him, and he never decides to travel with Cat. He's kind of like holding down the fort at River Run, basically. In the shows, did you notice any? book versus show differences in this chapter
4: well i mean we're talking about um ned's great friend and ally in uh moat kaylin uh the crown Ogman. gosh what is his name again
0: oh yeah yeah uh reed howland reed howland
4: reed yes that's who i'm thinking of um who is really a really compelling character, right? For in the books, and he doesn't get much press in the TV show until his kids show up, and then uh, we never really meet him in the show, do we? In the TV show,
0: we never do. We meet his no. kids. I mean, here's the thing: I think that there is a green scene flashback where you get to see Howland Reed at um, at the Tower of Joy, right? But as far as sort of him showing up to do any you know have any kind of impact on the plot um later on it just doesn't happen which yeah
4: anyway I, I think he's a fascinating character I think this idea that the Kranog men are maybe uh more indigenous than mm. than right they seem to be more like Tolkien's wood or, or, or something that, yeah. Or at least
0: closer to uh, they're closer to nature in a, in a way yes. that the children of the forest were closer to nature. Right. Yes. So they exactly. occupy that kind of liminal
4: space. And the idea that the towers are falling and there's really not a lot of uh, man-made structure left at Moat um, But the Kranachman can still hold the neck hmm. Um seems to be maybe by the power of what they understand about nature or how they can move through the, through the wetlands in ways that Hmm. uh, more civilized people can't. I just find him a very fascinating character that I'd like to know more about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You and a lot of folks for sure.
4: Hey, let me ask you this. I, I,
0: I really haven't looked into this, maybe you would know Um, in the show. Kat does this. She weaves this. I, I forget what she calls it. But she's actually like creating this piece of like woven artwork as a way to channel her grief for what has happened to to Bran, what has happened to Ned. And I don't remember that in the book. Do you do you know what I'm talking about? Or does that ring any bells for you?
4: I know what you're talking about in the show. I can't think of it in the book. May I help you stuff? No. I'm sorry,
3: I should not. You can't help, because a mother makes one for her children to protect them. Only a mother can make them. You've made them before? Twice. Did they work? After a fashion. I prayed for my son, Brand, to survive this fall. Many years before that, one of the boys came down with the pops. Mr. Lewin said if he made it through the night, he'd live. But it would be a very long night. So I sat with him all through the darkness. Listened to his rugged little breaths coughing is whimpering. Which boy? John Snow. When my husband brought that baby home from the war, I couldn't bear to look at him. didn't want to see those brown stranger's eyes staring off at me. So I prayed to the gods, take him away, make him die. He got the pot And I knew I was the worst woman who ever lived A murderer I'd condemned this poor, innocent child to a horrible death All because I was jealous of his mother A woman he didn't even know So I prayed to all seven gods Let the boy live Let him live And I'll love him. I'll be a mother to him. I'll beg my husband to give him a true name. To call him Stark and be done with it. To make him one of us. And he lived? And he lived. And I couldn't keep my promise. And everything that's happened since then... Four others come to my family. It's all because I couldn't love a motherless
0: child. And I wonder if that's—I mean, it's a literal weaving project, and right. I, it made me wonder. Like, I wonder if there's some something happening here that sort of playing with the metaphor.
4: Oh, of the peace weaver! See, you're not just a pretty face. That was really good.
0: <laughs> some would say I'm not a pretty face at all. <laughs> <laughs> but those people would be dead wrong Chris
4: <laughs> yes there you go
0: um, yeah anyway I, I that's really it was, clever it struck me as interesting in the show and I don't remember it from the book so if you're listening to this and you think no no don't be an idiot Anthony that's absolutely in the books you could find it in chapter whatever yeah. um, it's book at baldmove.com you can set me straight
4: let us know
5: Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. All new Pulp and Prestige this week. On
1: Tuesday, we'll cover the latest episode of The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live on Pulp. And on Thursday, we'll catch up with the latest Samurai subterfuge on FX Hulu's Shogun.
5: Then on our House of the Dragon feed, Anthony puts on his Maester's class on Monday. Then on Thursday, Steve joins him for Electric Hulu as they continue their discussion of George R.R. Martin's A Clash of Kings. Find these
1: and many of our other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Prestige in your favorite podcast app.
0: And now, Steve and I cover Blood of My Blood. This episode features the merging of Ben Jen and Cold Hands. We have more of the High Sparrow, Tom, and Marjorie plot. Sam Gilly and Little Sam arrive at Horn Hill, and then Danny finally figures out the. Drogon plus Dothraki solution to all of her problems. Well, almost all of them. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, I'm going to give you no. three possible fathers. And you have to choose one to start a sitcom. Oh, okay. So it's going to kind of be like a father knows best premise, but it's going to revolve around one of these three characters that we met in this episode.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um Walter Frey, mm-hmm. Mace Tyrell, mm-hmm. yeah he's a fun one. And Randall tarley mm-hmm. Randall is uh, obviously Sam's father.
2: Um I would say probably the least problematic if I'm if it's a sitcom I would I would take Tyrell just because uh, I figured there'd be a lot of uh, of episodes of him like falling downstairs and saying things like, who put those there? And then the audience laughs.
0: laughs. How he is still alive in Game of Thrones is beyond me. I mean, that guy should have been killed like 14 different times.
2: He's just ultimately just, just uh, surprised by joy, like all the time. I mean, <laughs> just a... Uh,
0: <sighs> He's you definitely want that. guy Got your poker game.
2: He probably brings the greatest dip.
0: He's gonna laugh Rel- at all you of really, your yeah. Kenny Rogers
2: jokes. Oh man, every and, time, yeah. and he's gonna do one himself, and everyone's yeah. like, "All right, okay." And then he does like another Kenny Rogers joke, then you just reach over, "Hey, uh, Mace, you got to know when to fold them on them <laughs> jokes." And then everybody now is back on your oh, side. Oh, and he's again gonna and laugh
0: just, at every joke yeah. about him you, himself.
2: You just you just did a Kenny Rogers joke, making fun of too many Kenny Rogers jokes. Yeah. And at the
0: end of the night, all of his money will be your money.
2: Yeah. All of his money is gone. And, and again, the dip. He talks about the dip and everybody like, like kind of makes something for, like, shut up about the dip. But deep down, everybody's like, man, that dips real good.
0: He's the kind of guy who's like, he's going to lose all of his money and he's just going to have a big old smile on his face and he's going to think, well, that was just the price of admission. I can't
2: wait to do that again. Yeah, the poker episodes of this show are really funny. The ones where you know he has, there's a couple of sweet moments where everyone just figures he's so bumbling, but then he gives like some real pearls of wisdom to like his son, and they're, you know, kind of shockingly simple but still poignant. And mm-hmm. but then like you know, as they as he walks off, he trips on the first step. Who put that here? And then everybody laughs again.
0: This guy, this guy is, he's a, I mean. I think he's genuinely trying his best.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But again, again, it's one of those, like, this is the guy that'll end up on the Iron Throne just by virtue of just walking in there accidentally.
0: Okay. Steve, if you were to tell me that there was going to be an episode with no Tyrion, no Mm -hmm. Jon Snow, and no major deaths... I would think that's eh, probably going to be a subpar episode. But I liked it. I like this uh, yeah. class, solid Game of Thrones episode.
2: I liked this one a lot and in fact now that you mention all those absences I I didn't even really notice.
0: Yeah, it that that's the feat. I mean, I think that always I'm always going to notice if there's no Tyrion, but then when I looked it up to make sure that it was no Tyrion this episode, I also realized there's no Jon Snow. Yeah and apparently according to the wiki it's only the second episode of the series where there wasn't a death really yeah although there was there was a a a rabbit decapitated so dismemberment count and okay. then brand drinks the the rabbit blood
2: yeah yeah very lost boys
0: i'm glad that you said that cuz there is a little bit of an homage in this episode and do you remember Ben Jen?
2: Um, Yeah. I mean, it's one of those. Yeah, I guess I do. It does feel a little bit like this guy could have been anybody and everybody I'd already seen in terms of facial recognition software on this one. Like, mm-hmm. there, There's a lot of Game of Thrones characters that can open the same phone.
0: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the first book. There's this common refrain, like whenever Jon Snow is thinking, he's like constantly wondering about what happened to his uncle Benjen, and because yeah, and it seems
2: like all of a sudden now there has been a an emphasis on Benjen, right? I mean, all the way to the the Jon Snow killing, right?
0: I, I suppose so. What are you thinking of? I wasn't. I, I don't remember. Was that this. was
2: that what it was when they mentioned that word of your uncle?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
2: and right. that's what they get. That's how they get him out of there, or whatever. That's right. And, and then it's like, and then it felt like all of a sudden now I'm hearing Ben Jen's name a lot. It's it feels like uh people who, you know, it feels like the showrunners like, ah man, we totally forgot to I thought you were gonna mention him three episodes ago.
0: So in the book, so far, there's been no resolution at all about Ben Jen. But there is this character that, that they call Cold Hands, and he's supposed to be like some undead good guy. And he rides like a giant elk all right and uh he saves you know he saves sam at one point and then he saves bran and uh they they don't know his name but he's like as cold as a corpse and so they call him cold hands Mm. and uh apparently there's a lot of there was a lot of speculation that maybe cold hands was benjen but uh martin basically said Nah, it's not the not the not same guy so they clearly they've merged a couple characters as they do from time to time in this show. Got it. And then what we learn about him, and I don't think it's in the show, but I might as well mention it is that he brings them to the wall and he can't go past the wall. And he says something like there's some strong magic in the wall and I can't go past the border. Mm. So there's some kind of sense of, and I, the only reason I mentioned this is because there was a lot of fan talk about whether the White Walker or the Night King could actually go beyond the wall.
2: Oh, um, okay.
0: So if the wall's like magic and keeps, you know, the cold side cold. Right, yeah, yeah.
2: the McDLT of the North.
0: Exactly. Then then how is the Night King gonna get across the wall? And, and why are we
2: worried that much about him just stay on the other side of the wall?
0: Yeah, exactly. So and then part of the question was all right, well, the Night King touches Bran, and mm. that allows him to get into the Three-Eyed Raven's abode. Sure. So maybe Bran goes south of the wall. Then... And then
2: now he's a conduit. Yeah, something like that. So again, going with the Lost Boys theme, you inter- you it, the vampire can't cross the threshold until you invite him. Exactly. exactly. This is a shot-for-shot remake of uh, Schumacher's uh, okay. Lost Boys.
0: I don't know if you were ever... Uh, did you ever read any of the Dune sci-fis no all right well there's this figurehead in dune who when they take on their particular role they sort of upload the memories of everyone who's ever had the role so it's just like this matronly figure and so she doesn't just have her own personality she kind of carries with her the memories of every character that came before her the showrunners confirmed that that's supposed to be what's happening to brand. Like when he has all of his sort of visions and he's flashing through past present, future events that he's actually the three eyed Raven has uploaded all of these centuries of memories into brand's head. Okay. And although the show doesn't do a great job of explaining it, I, th- I think what we're supposed to understand is this isn't really Bran Stark anymore. It's Bran Stark plus, like, the Three-Eyed Raven. So he's like a dual personality.
2: And But doesn't Benjen, like, suggest, like, he needs to become the Three-Eyed Raven? Like, he has a choice? Or is that... Am I missing it? Well... Or is he just saying, this is what you're you're becoming and you need to become this?
0: I think what Benjen says is that... Uh, he says, the the Three-Eyed Raven summoned me... And then Mira says he's dead. And then when Bran wakes up, Benjamin said, and lives again. Yeah, okay. And so I think I was wrong to say dual personality. I think he's more like a collective personality. So Ben or Bran Stark as we knew him is gone, basically. He's he's just part of this collective three eyed Raven personality. Mm. And to be honest, I really wish the show did more to explain that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I kind of, kind of get like I just it, it kind of comes off a little bit more like maybe a a degree of possession, which I guess is kind of close.
0: I suppose so, and we have seen that with Hodor, right? Because Bran possesses Hodor, but then, but it's not really Hodor. Hodor is like not really. Present at that point,
2: right? So that's where it's like, okay, well, brand seems to be sort of towing the line between being present and also being uh, everywhere, or, or at least where his memories take him. I guess.
0: All right, so I want to talk about Arya. Um, she decides not to kill the actress that she's supposed to kill.
2: Arya is just not ready to be someone other than Arya.
0: I think Arya has figured out that she's Arya. I think yeah. that it, there was a Which, while, yeah. There was a while there where she was like, "I need, I need, I need to find some kind of meaning in my life." And uh, I think that if I follow sort of the footsteps of Serial Pharrell, go to Bravos, or follow like the Jack and Hagar Faceless Man thing, there's some power there. And I and I need power, right? Because I'm I'm basically powerless, and I I got I got shit to do, right? Right. But I think what she realizes, I think what ends up happening is she's a little bit tempted by the actress. Like, she thinks, oh, I could actually be pretty good at this. I join this acting troupe and, um, you know, someone that believes that I, I'm worth something. Uh, and then she realizes, nah, that's not me. And then I think she realizes, well, maybe the faceless man isn't me either. Maybe right. Maybe I'm me. And then, of course you know, if you needed to be hit over the head with a metaphor, she goes and gets a needle. Right. So she gets her identity back in that way and and supposedly now she's marked for death. Now she's marked for death. And I'm <laughs> just curious. Um, do we are, do have you ever cared to find out the name of this other faceless man girl that wants to kill Arya?
2: Well, I mean, I think you can't right I mean it's sort of a product of this plot line right I mean if we get her backstory, she wouldn't be an apt pupil for the faceless man right I because mean, she' sure. i mean she we don't know anything she just exists, and she feels i mean she definitely just feels more like a plot device than a person yeah yeah so so with that um it I almost there's become-
0: something. There's something about her that Arya can look at her and think, "Well, that's what—that's who I could become."
2: Right. In a way, it's a—it's either—it's either a goal or a cautionary tale.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: And so that probably plays into it. And there's, but there definitely seems to be a—the one thing about her which sort of betrays this nothingness is uh, she appears to be somebody with a bit of an agenda.
0: Oh, she to, She's she's either jealous or she just enjoys torturing Arya,
2: right and so either way yeah. there's this there's this element of like well we don't know any of her motivations all we know is that she's there to cause pain and suffering and yeah, she yeah. doesn't particularly care for this aria person which also suggests like well this is not you know so that's where i think like it can get kind of frustrating sometimes because you're like well it seems like she's this great student and she's definitely got it all down but she's clearly not just doing this for the greater good whatever that is in this
0: yeah she's got some yeah you're right the the fact that she has agenda suggests that she's got some kind of agency which makes her someone rather than no one
2: right and then on top of that it's like and you know Jacken seems to be like kind of on top of a lot of this why isn't why isn't that seem to be something that's kind of recognized? So, again, it's like, is this a blind spot? Like, so there's a lot of questions, right? And it's, in, and I'm, I'm curious and I'm hoping to see what ends up happening. It's like, is this all part of it? Like, is it intentional that maybe he's not realizing what's going on or does he know what's going on? And this is part of his grander lesson. Um, it's so hard to know because there's so, it's, it's shrouded in so much mystery. But then you get, I get concerned from a narrative perspective. Well, is it shrouded in mystery or is it just not fleshed out?
0: Well, all right. Yeah, I think that here's here's my I feel this way about a lot of science fiction, too. I feel like if you're going to keep a mystery, if you're going to keep the veils up, you have to reveal just a little bit every episode to keep me wanting to get into the mystery. You have to draw me into it. You can't just totally wall it off. Until no, the, until the totally very agreed. end, I need a little bit of a little bit of the mystery revealed. If you're going to keep drawing me into the mystery, one of the reasons that I would not want Randall Tarley as my father, <laughs> <laughs> and there are maybe a few reasons I, I could think up. Is did you catch uh, <laughs> did you catch Sam's brother's name? No it's dick on. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which I do think Bran probably named him at some point. <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: yeah, he didn't mean to, but
0: and I don't really want to re- recreate that scene, but um
2: it has to do with him being very cold and concerned that his penis fell off. <laughs> He's out there yelling at Mira, "It's <laughs> my
4: dick on."
2: She's like, "What?"
4: "It's my dick on." <laughs>
0: so yeah you name any father that names his son dick on i I just not gonna trust the guy
2: (laughs) yeah i mean i you know there's a big uh this is a big moment you know you get you get to sam's house and we've heard all these that
0: scene was dynamite i loved it i loved everything about like everything about just just the complete fish out of water and here sam is sort of the rich returning hero he killed the fen, killed the white walker he's become in in so many ways he's become the man that his father never thought he could be
2: right and it's not like he went out there and also just comes back shredded and he's just super brave but i mean considering what you know that he's able to still maintain his his level of intelligence and his kindness but he also has demonstrated numerous times that he's willing to put his life on the line for for uh
0: yeah yeah he walks the walk and in addition to that i mean you really see sort of like he's he's gotten a lot of his mother's uh sort of personality you know her her kindness her compassion and yet even though he's kind of he's become the man that his father never thought he could be he totally reverts back to you know this brutalized, abused kid. Yeah. When he's at his father's table.
2: Well, and you see that, right? You see that with families. Um, oh yeah. I, you know, I mean, I even see it with my, uh, like my my wife's family. When all the sisters get together, it's like inevitably they start to to play their their familiar roles.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's the patterns that you've developed as a child they kind of predetermine how these relationships are going to
2: evolve, right? And in some ways they almost feel necessary because if there's any deviation, it just it sets everything kind of in a very odd motion like well, we don't know what to do with this. Mm-hmm.
0: So that was wonderful. I thought
2: And so this is of course not not in the book, right? We never get to Yeah, um, I'll
0: never never go to Hornhill in the book.
2: Which, you know, is is pretty remarkable because it is you know, a very effective scene, and you know, you get the sense that you know Sam's a guy that we've kind of fallen in love with, and we know his backstory is peppered with a terrible father and that complication. Yeah, part of what
0: made him interesting as a character in the first place was the story about how his father basically disowned him and threatened to murder him. It's like this guy must be a real bastard. Mm-hmm, yeah. But this and the actor that comes in is like oh no this guy's even worse than i thought
2: right <laughs> yeah, right, which is an incredible payoff and that's why i think the scene works so well and and i think everybody does great in it even the um even the the other brother you know dick oh, you, Di-
0: you mean dick you mean dick on of horn hill
2: yeah dick on of horn hill like he doesn't um
0: if I you're from even... horn hill <laughs> <laughs> dick on is something of an appropriate name <laughs> right
2: well he doesn't uh you know, he doesn't just like pile on necessarily with Sam either. It's like, there is this, it seems to be throughout the entire house, there's a genuine affection for Sam, except for the father. Yeah. And So this yeah. is like, a, it seems like this is a dividing moment and it's just at a pure patriarchal respect that this kind of stuff continues to go on, it seems mm-hmm. like. And so yeah. when the mother kind of storms off, it's like, it's, it, it, you could see that, you know, you don't know a, a ton about their backstory, but you get, you feel like you get a lot of their characters in just a, an economy of scenes and it's, it's a rich, it's a rich moment. And um, I mean, his eventual fleeing now creates this, like a new tension, he already, there's already so much tension around the Sam and, and Gilly and Sam dynamic. And then now you add this. Eh, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take the family sword on top of it. Yeah, right.
0: I honestly didn't know when I watched the show, I had no idea what was gonna happen because of course it hasn't happened in the books.
2: So that's going to be kind of a fun experience, too. I mean,
0: yo, absolutely. And so it was sort of like, yeah, no, of course, he's going to drop Gilly off. Because maybe she's done, you know, maybe she's served her purpose. Right. To sort of explain something about Sammy. It'd be pretty typical for a show to do that. Like, here's a heroic male. He falls in love and now he has something to fight for. And so we're kind of done with the female character.
2: Yeah, yeah so when he
0: when he like barges back in and, and in many ways she's she's more brave than he is but when he barges back in takes his family takes the family sword you know that he you know he he's gonna come for the sword right well he can try
2: right that was a, that was a big moment right i mean and i, and now, I almost so now. feel like that
0: that worked better than him sort of confronting his father at the dinner table
2: Yeah. I, I think I, yeah, because it's still, it's, that's a big turn, right? Like the, the scene of him kind of cowering at the table, it just felt real natural. You're frustrated, but you don't, you're not surprised by it and you're not even, you know, and as frustrating as it is, almost don't even blame him. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a, it's a trope that could have easily turned into a no Tad, what about you? And then, you know, and then it's like, all right, I guess he's all brave now. But he didn't. He kept and
0: waiting for him to shout to the kitchen for a chicken pot pie. That's right.
2: So so instead he uh but instead he decides like he shows bravery and it's sort of like it's after the fact, but he does have that moment of like clarity and he's like, Well, I'm gonna take this and I'm gonna be brave, you know. Who do you love? You love a sword. And uh you know, <laughs>
0: I mean, I guess you could say it's sort of. I mean, it is brave, and at the same time, it kind of is true to his cowardly defaults.
2: Yeah, because oh, he's yeah.
0: sneaking out in the middle of the night. You know, he's he doesn't sneaking out.
2: Do and he's stealing it. uh You know, and he says if he could try, and like I'm sure in his mind he's like, yeah, and he he would totally get it back. <laughs> but at the same time, he's just kind of like, well, I, what am I going to do? He's like, I don't want to. I don't really want to leave my family here, and. I want to be with my family, so let's all go together. And 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 it's an, and it's also an interesting element. I mean, like Sam's, you know, he's he's a, he's a planner. He's a logical guy, and so this is very spontaneous. And so that's kind of an interesting take. And that's where the courage, I think, comes through, even if it's fueled by other things. I mean, it is at the end of the day, even though he's sneaking out and taking the sword, there is an element of courage. He's setting himself up for a problem.
0: This is a very. This is a very sort of. 80s high school movie theme. You know, you've got the wounded kind of weakling who needs to stand up to the bully and get the girl in the end. I mean, that's like every 80s high school movie was built on that premise.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit of like, what is it? Maybe maybe some pretty in pink.
0: Yeah, and Gilly gets a prom dress. So Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, so she has that moment where she walks out. Oh, you're beautiful.
0: Oh, I feel so silly. You should always wear my sister's clothing.
2: <laughs> yeah. You mean the one that your mother laid out for you?
5: FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel, Shogun, into a 10-part miniseries this spring. Set in the Shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in
1: 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain. Featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works.
5: Starring Hiroyuki Sanada from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two-part debut.
1: Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app.
5: Rick, how you doing, buddy? You, you don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do you even know what it's like out there?
1: No, not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne into the cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like
5: out there? Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne, was out uh, following a giant wagon train. That, that sounds pretty weird,
1: but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judah with her, right?
5: Um, actually, she kind of left him to be raised by Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. Alright, Well, Rick is getting ready, Aaron and I are too. We're preparing to once again recommission The Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, the ones who live. The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows? Maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: this week's bird's eye view as promised here is part of my conversation with jason Kabasi from the podcastica network if you're interested in anything that they're doing over there jason tells me that he just revamped the website podcastica.com go check that out here is jason Kabasi. okay so the guiding motivation for jamie is well i guess you could say it's two it's like to be the 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 best artist with the sword who ever lived, right? Mm -hmm. But to be devoted, faithful, and in love with Cersei, right? Right. And in both of those ways, I don't think they ever betrayed his character. So even if he started doing things driven by those motives that made him seem heroic at times, they were still true to the motives of that character that's another storyline that I think a lot of people were dissatisfied with that he went back to Cersei Mm -hmm. and I thought it was great because I mean it's,
5: the kind of mistake that you people make with Game of Thrones, starting with Ned Stark, you try to plug them into the typical yeah. heroic arc, and it felt like, okay, he's uh, Jamie's overcome his flaws and has become this shining knight. But no, he's a human being who's in love with his person, and that's more important than anything to him. And he stayed yeah. true to that in the end, even though uh-huh. we all hate her and wish he'd stayed sure. with Brienne, who's awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
0: If you'd like to hear the full conversation between Jason and I, check out my other podcast, Cocoons of Horror. After my hour-long conversation with Jason, Steve and I discuss this year's roster of Oscar Best Film nominees. And that is all for this week.